and welcome to this week's episode of the Hammer Time Podcast. I am your host, Ethan Hammerman. We are on iTunes, as always, talking about sports society and stuff each and every week with one of my friends on social media or other means. And, you know, I'm actually, before I get deep in the podcast, I'm going to I'm gonna have a plea because we don't have any, pretty much, ratings on social media right now. We don't have any ratings on iTunes right now. I would love it if you gave me a rating. Go to iTunes, share with your friends, and, you know, maybe I'll think of something to, to give away at some point. But I just wanted to put that out there if you are feeling charitable. You know, we're at the end of the summer, getting to early fall. Throw this podcast a rating, because it definitely is one of those things that I would really appreciate. So, hopefully, that's something that you can do. Today's guest is the second member of the famed Lost Podcast. The podcast that was recorded all about cartoons that ended up not actually recording correctly. So I'm I'm really really excited to have Alex Gellar here with me. We had Coley Mick here a couple of weeks ago. It took a week off because last week was freaking crazy, and then now we have Alex on, and we're going to talk about much more than just the cartoons we talked about the first time you're here, Alex. So I hope you're ready to talk about it. Yeah, man, what an episode that was, too. I thought we got into a really good flow, had some really good, interesting discussions, and then uh, I was so disappointed to hear that the audio was uh, corrupted or whatever and lost out into the ether. So only the three of us will ever truly know how great that podcast was. Well, we're going to replicate it here, and I'd also like to point out that you are the second person from your household that I've had on this podcast. And I don't know if Charlie... I don't know if Charlie made an appearance at some point. It overlaps a lot. Yeah. you. Charlie's going to make an appearance? At some point, we're going to have Charlie on, too. That's the goal. Excellent. That'll probably be your most downloaded episode. I I completely concur. We're going to start with (laughs) sports. And you work for the NFL, NFL NFL.com, as a fantasy editor, which is really, really cool. So to start, why don't you quickly tell us what made you interested in sports growing up? especially football. Yeah, well, growing up in Wisconsin, football is kind of in your blood because uh, there are other professional sports teams, but none of them are very good. And the Packers have both a storied history with Vince Lombardi and his dynasty in the 60s, and then the Brett Favre era, and now in the Aaron Rodgers era. But, I mean, people were diehard fans even in the darker days between those those halcyon periods. So, like, growing up as a kid, you, you bleed green and gold, and Recess every day in elementary school is usually football. The, the kids that played basketball were like the outliers and other things. I mean, I played soccer growing up too, but but football in particular was just, it's in the blood of everybody in that area. That's what's so cool about the Packers being a uh, or the only community-owned team still in professional sports is that everybody, I mean, it's silly. It's all a, a paper document that people pay like $250 for, but you feel invested in the team. And it's, it's a pretty cool thing to me that they, they haven't sold out and it's still Lambeau Field and not, you know, U.S. Cellular or Domino's Field or whatever like that. So growing up, I always had a huge love of football. It was instilled in me by my father, who's a diehard Packer fan. Played football and other sports growing up. And uh, football season is one of my favorite times of the year, so I'd always look forward to it. And uh, when I first moved to Los Angeles to work in entertainment, as we'll get into later, I would frequently drive past the NFL Network offices on my way to work. And I was like, man, it'd be pretty cool to one day work there. And Lo and behold, um, I saw a job opportunity come across my desk while I was working in entertainment, got in here. It was in digital features originally, so I was doing a lot more 
uh, feature writing and shooting some video and editing things, which got me to go to the NFL draft for a couple years, which is pretty cool. But uh, fantasy football was always a passion for me, and uh, it's a huge moneymaker, I think, as most people who listen to this podcast will know. Uh, ESPN just did a 28-hour fantasy marathon. We're doing fantasy draft week right now at NFL Media. So it looked like a good opportunity to get in at this time. This fantasy was expanding, and now two or three years later, I'm, I'm here and I'm happy. So that's, that's kind of the, the long and short of it there. Sounds like a pretty good start for you. I have to ask, since you were from Wisconsin and you were growing up right when Brett Favre mania was happening, two-part question. One, do you have any friends or family friends named Brett who were in Wisconsin, and two, what happened to them after Brett left? Uh, well, I have one friend who's, uh, well, my godfather's name is Brett, and uh, he was from Denver originally, so it wasn't a Brett Favre thing. And I know a couple people that, uh, a couple younger people that were named Brett, but uh, I don't think they were too heartbroken. You know, there were a lot of fans that, that didn't want to see Brett leave because of what he gave them. I was not one of that group. I, was, I thought it was his time. To, uh, to hang him up so we could gracefully transition to Aaron Rodgers, and that's worked out pretty well. But I know there were, there were a lot of bitter feelings, but I'm sure there are plenty more kids out there named Brett from that era that I just didn't have the pleasure of meeting or, or knowing at the time. And now there are a whole bunch of, like, elementary school kids named Aaron, so we'll, yep, we'll, we'll, see them, we'll see them grow up in Green Bay and Wisconsin over the next few years. So you mentioned that you started in digital features and then you moved over to fantasy. So what is your background with fantasy? What was your first experience with that? Well, my first experience with fantasy goes way back. Like I mentioned, my father, you know, was a huge football fan and it was something we'd always do together is watch games. And he was doing fantasy football back before it was even online. So he would be, he was the commissioner and he would be mailing out scores to everybody. He would be getting the paper on Monday and Tuesday mornings and hand-tabulating fantasy scores and mailing it out, and I was always kind of fascinated by it, because, you know, as a kid, I liked to play games and stuff, so I'd play Madden and things like that on my Sega Genesis, but uh, he finally, when I was a little older, you know, I was probably in, like, six or maybe seven or eight, he uh, let me come to one of the drafts, and, because uh, they'd always do a live draft, it's a tradition we still do to this day in this league, but those first few years, I would go, and I would just hang out with all the adults, you know, all the guys that were doing the draft, drinking beer and, and joking and stuff like that. And that was really cool as a young kid. And it was just football the whole time. So I'd wear my jersey and then I would run beers to the guys and they would tip me. So I loved it because I could make like, you know, 10 bucks as a, as a kid. But uh, after years of doing that, my dad would occasionally, I wanted to make picks. So he would, you know, he'd give me like an eighth round pick. He'd be like, all right, which of these three guys should we take? Or who should we take in, in this round kind of thing? And I would start making some picks. And I think when I was about 11 or 12, honestly, the spot opened up in the league. And I was like, put me in. And he's like, well, you got to pay your own entry fee and stuff. And I was like, I don't care. I want to be in the league. And I've been in that league ever since. It's got my uncle. Two of my uncles are in it. My godfather's in it. Some other longtime family friends. Um, it's, you know, obviously changed over the years. But it's uh, it's by the most important league that I'm in. And now I'm turning 28 later this year. So I've probably been in it for 15 or so years. And... Uh, I fly back every year still for the live draft. That's what I'm doing this weekend. I'm hopping on a plane Thursday night. We're live drafting on, uh, on Saturday. There will be a, a keg of beer and a bunch of food and stuff. And uh, it's a, kind of a tradition unlike any other. So that's, that's where the love of fantasy started for me. And then getting a chance to work in it and, and dive in much deeper as the, the community is growing. People are doing so much better research than 
back in the day when I started. It's pretty it's pretty wild to be a part of that now. So since you started at NFL.com and NFL Media, how have you gotten better in that league, or have you gotten worse? I mean, I was always pretty good in that league, um, but I think I, I don't think I've actually won the league since I joined the NFL, which everybody loves harassing me about. I'm pretty sure I've been in the championship each of the last two years and lost out, but uh, I'm, I'm usually in the mix. It's a, it's a good league, and it's, it's a fun league, and it's one of those leagues where everybody knows each other so uh, and knows each other's strategies and, and strengths and weaknesses and stuff, so it's pretty fun. But, yeah, you know, it's a big – once you start working at a, at a company like this or doing fantasy football anywhere, everybody loves making fun of you if you don't win a league. But the one league that I could, I've continued to dominate since getting this job has been the league with my college friends, so – they're some of the ones that I think would love to beat me the most, and those fools just can't do it. So that, that's a good one to hang over their heads. At least you have bragging rights over somebody, so that's pretty good. <laughs> right. So there, you've played fantasy for a long time, and from what I've seen, everybody has a couple of certain moments or a couple of certain players in their fantasy career who are special for them for some reason. Uh, hopefully for a good reason, and we're going to start with that. So why don't you tell me about one or two of your happiest fantasy moments or players that you associate with happy fantasy moments? Yeah, of course. Uh, one of the ones that I remember most fondly, I think it was the first time I won our, our league, was uh, Thomas Jones. One of those surprise years when he had, I think it was the year he had 10 or 12, or maybe it was even 14 touchdowns or something obscene like that. He was a guy that I ended up scooping up in one of those middle rounds, and he, you know, I helped, was able to ride him all the way to the fantasy championship. But, uh, you know, honestly, there's so many, there's a bunch of other ones that it's, it's hard to get super specific when at this point, once you start working in a place like this, I'm in like 10 to 15 leagues every year. So with the various, uh, the playoffs and, you know, occasional championships and stuff, it's tough to narrow down specific ones. But, um, I remember I, I did draft Peyton Manning earlier than I probably should have the year 2004, whatever it was that he threw 49 touchdowns. So when I did, it was kind of a controversial pick, too. You know, he'd been good in fantasy, but I was like, I was like, I just kind of got a feeling this year. And I took him, and some people were like, oh, that's a pretty crazy pick. And I was like, well, we'll see at the end of the year. And then he had an amazing year, so that was a, that was a good one. And actually, oh, this is a fun story, too. So Jeremy Hill's rookie year, my dad uh, drafted Giovanni Bernard, and then, you know, a handful of rounds later, I took Jeremy Hill. And uh, he was giving me grief about it, and I was like, I was like, you pipe down over there. This guy's going to steal your back's job by the end of the season. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. I mean, Bernard was a little bit injured, but I was able to ride Jeremy Hill, I think, to the to the championship round, but I, I lost that year, too. So those are those some good ones that I can remember off the top of my head. The funny thing with me is that the fantasy player who I have the best track record with is probably someone who I used to like a lot in real life, and recently uh, some things are like a little bit bad with him, but it's Russell Wilson. I've never lost a yeah. league when I've drafted Russell Wilson, and that includes... My dynasty league, when I inherited a team, it was 2012 when this league started, yeah. and I came in inheriting a really bad team that pretty much just had, like, two or three really good players and then very limited amount else. Actually, now that I think about it, it started in 2011, because I drafted Cam Newton in 2011 in this league. And then I think the first year I went about 500, ended up with the fourth overall pick. And the second year, it was 2012, and I had a decision to make, and we were doing a live draft, and I could either pick Ryan Tannehill or Russell Wilson. 
It was down to those two. And no one thought oh I was going to take Russell Wilson because we were drafting in, like, August. So it was yeah. before we knew we had the starting job. And basically, I was down to, I'm either going to pick Ryan Tannehill, who was still on the board, because Luck and RG3 and whoever else was really good that year were gone. Or maybe we'll about to take like a wide receiver or someone. But in my mind, like, the guy was going to be Russell Wilson. I just remember I got on the phone, and my team was called, and I don't know if you You'll probably remember this video, but you remember the video with, um, uh, Marsh, the guy who did the Greg Jennings video and did the Marshawn Lynch video? Oh, yeah, the Marshawn one. The course, definition of, of determination? <laughs> so my team's awesome. name was determination, parentheses, N, period, close parentheses. Like, we're, my team is That's the awesome. definition of determination. And yeah, yeah, I, I remember, we were, we were all sort of strewn about the country because, some of my friends were in San Diego, and a couple of other my friends were around. And I remember I call in on the phone, and I'm like, with the fourth pick in the 2012 rookie draft, the definition of determination selects someone who we selects the man who will be handing off to the running back who the video was thusly named after, Russell Wilson, quarterback from Wisconsin, or quarterback from the Seahawks or whatever. And, and everyone was shocked. And... The man, it was a 2QB league. My two QBs in that league were Cam Newton and Russell Wilson. And I won the next three championships until that league disbanded, which was very sad for me. That's awesome. Um, yeah, no, Russell Wilson, is my is, he's my fantasy guy. Another one who jumps out to me a lot is someone who has a soft spot for me. I've mentioned him before, but Justin Bethel on the Cardinals. Uh, (laughs) In that league, he blocked a kick for a touchdown week 16 one year, and I was down by five touchdowns, and in the nightcap against, I believe it was the Niners, Russell Wilson threw for six, and won me the championship. I think that was in 2012. But, yeah, I have a soft spot for Russell Wilson because of that. Like, he's he's my fantasy guy. I have to draft in every league if possible. So, don't let me get Russell Wilson. Um, On the flip side, though, we also have some bad memories. Some some players who we have negative associations with. Or some really tough fantasy losses. So, why don't you tell us about one of your stories on the flip side? I can't remember any specific losses, per se. But, um, I know for a while I was kind of cursed with drafting Packers, which sucked being from Wisconsin. I actually stopped for a few years, basically, just taking Packers. But in a string of years, I think in 2004, it might have been Javon Walker uh, broke or tore his ACL or broke his leg in week one. The next year, I think I took Amon Green, and he got injured and only played in like four or five games. And then in 2010, I'm pretty sure I drafted Ryan Grant. Or no, yeah, 2010, I drafted Ryan Grant, and he went down with an injury in week one, too, for the Packers. So... That, that was pretty brutal, you know, being from Wisconsin and living in Wisconsin at the time and drafting a player you're hoping to be excited to actually watch every Sunday, too, when I didn't have a Sunday ticket or anything, and then just consistently seeing them go down and be a detriment to the team that you're actually rooting for. And then the other one that I can think of, and this is something I've, I've been trying to pass off to people in the that read my stuff and think now as a fantasy writer, is um, to not let a bias against the player in a negative way impact you drafting. Because for years... I, I got burned by Frank Gore. Like, the two years he got injured were the two years I drafted him. 
so then ever since then I was like, I'm like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna touch Frank Gore. And then for years afterwards, he went for like 1108, 1109 and was just like the most consistent running back. And I kept avoiding him. So it doesn't do yourself any favors to let those, uh, you know, let an instance like that lead to some sort of inherent bias or, or vendetta against the player. So I, I've used my Frank Gore story to pass on to others, you know, if they got burned by Eddie Lacy last year or CJ Anderson or things like that, that all fantasy seasons are not created equal, especially for the running back position. And those are two running backs who have looked pretty good this preseason and I think could both do pretty well this year. I remember there was one year, and my little fantasy pearl of wisdom, don't take all high-risk players. I don't remember all the high-risk players I took in this draft, but I remember that in 2009... It was my freshman year of college, and a bunch of us met on my college's Facebook group, and we decided to make a fantasy league together, which was like, oh, we're all freshmen, we need to make friends, so we figured it would be fun. And I just remember in that league, I don't know what made me make the picks that I picked, but I made some of the worst picks that year. The only one that sticks out to me is I took Terrell Owens when he was on the Bills in, like, round five. Which, yeah, no, it was bad. And I was like, oh, he used to be really good, and he's going to be a highly targeted player there, so maybe he ends up getting a lot of run and maybe ends up being a really nice value pick. It was not a nice value pick. It was not a nice value pick whatsoever. I think I came in last in that league. That's probably the worst I've ever done in a fantasy league. That was really, really bad. Uh, Yeah, I mean, just... Don't take all high-risk players. If there is a really good value pick, even if you don't like them or you thought you were going to take them like two rounds earlier, just pick them because there's a reason every player has a value at some point, and you just have to figure out where that value is for that player. Now, I don't want to spoil too much of your NFL.com content. Everyone should be checking it out, by the way. But now as week one of 2016 is sort of creeping up, we're at the end of August. We're getting to September. We're, we're almost there. Do you have maybe one sleeper that you are keeping an eye on that you want to share with everyone or one player that you think could have a really, really good year? And I've heard your takes in your podcast. You have some takes, so I want to hear a take. Well, here's a new one that I've just kind of warmed up to that I don't really think many people in the fantasy community have been on to date is that Darren Sproles could actually be a huge sleeper, even in standard leagues. And it's kind of funny to think about, you know, you think Darren Sproles, tiny guy, 33 years old, Eagles, blah. But with DeMarco Murray out of there, he took his, like, 230-some touches out of the offense. And the new offense that uh, Doug Peterson and Frank Reich are trying to instill, I actually just saw another puff piece today about how excited they are to put Darren Sproles in an expanded role and uh, try and treat him more like a Danny Woodhead type with that short, super shifty guy that excels in space. And when you just kind of look at the whole situation, like Ryan Matthews is injury prone. He's also not an elite pass catcher. Darren Sproles is better in space and has a third down back. Uh, Wendell Smallwood's still kind of a later round rookie who could use a little time to get season to the NFL. Plus, the wide receivers in, the, in Philadelphia right now are not exactly what I would call good. It's all kind of lining up for this to be a huge season for Darren Sproles and kind of bouncing back to that, like, the New Orleans Darren Sproles we saw. He was like a top-20 fantasy bat. And right now, in in 10-team standard leagues on NFL.com and on Fantasy Football Calculator, he's not even being drafted. 
So I think Darren Sproles is, I just put a piece out today where I talked about him, is a huge sleeper that as drafts start coming, I'm going to probably be trying to snag in, in one of the last couple rounds. I think that's a really, really good call. I like that a lot. I would say, like, one sleeper who's jumped out to me a little bit, and he got a lot of run at ESPN today, so I think the secret's out on him, but Michael Thomas on the Saints is going to be really good. And yeah, I have a feeling he's going to... I think it arced, I think that he could out-target Cooks. Because I, I'm not sure that Cooks is the most versatile threat. I think that the way that Breeze likes to run that offense, he's going to look for Cooks as a vertical guy, a little bit like Deshaun Jackson in Philadelphia. And I think you'll see a lot of over-the-middle uh, plays with Thomas. And I also think that he can make an impact in the red zone as well. Now, of course, this means that Cooks is now going to go off for like 2,000 yards. And I like Cooks as well. I think he's really good. And I would draft him fairly highly, too. But Michael Thomas is a sleeper. Another sleeper who no one is talking about, which really is curious to me, Jimmy Graham. I got Jimmy Graham in the 12th round of a draft. And I was like, how is he slipping so far? Do people forget that, I mean, I know that there's all these splits when he went to Seattle, where he ended up actually being slightly detrimental to what the team was running from a a play standpoint, and then he got injured, of yeah. course, but he's still Jimmy Graham. He's still really good. Like, really, really good. I he's in the top that... tier of tight ends, and he's going behind, like, Colby Fleener, who I just don't understand. Right. I'm not a big fan of Colby Fleener's game. It's more so the situation for him, but I think what's turning a lot of people off, especially me, with Jimmy Graham, is the injury he had. There really is not a good history, and like Chris Wesseling talks about this on the Around the NFL podcast, of players coming back from an injury like that that's so severe. I mean, it took Victor Cruz, what, two and a half years now to come back, and Jimmy Graham, there's report, he's going to try and start week one. I just, I have serious reservations about him being able to, to get back into the, you know, elite physical shape that he was and coming off of such a severe injury. So that's why, like, for me in the later rounds, I'd rather target a guy that is healthy and seems to have a better uh, better target share coming his way, like Colby Fleener, God forbid, or you know Dwayne Allen or uh, Zach Miller in Chicago. Those are some of the some of, or Jared Cook even. Those are some of the late round guys I'd like to take a stab at instead. Jared Cook's a good call, and I think it's nice that Eric Ebron's going to be back too because he could definitely make a nice impact in Detroit. They have a good division of tight ends in NFC North. I like all of those tight ends a fair bit, yes, uh, especially once you see the value come to fruition. Martellus Bennett, we, we can pass on him, although he makes that offense so good. But I don't know yeah, if you've been watching any of the Patriots games, but Garoppolo, his first read on every single play is Martellus Bennett. Yeah, it is. It's kind of funny. It, it's actually really fun. And, you know, Gronk is hurt. So I don't know how badly hurt, but Gronk is not feeling 100%. So hopefully uh, Martellus Bennett gets some reps. I'm a huge fan of it, so I hope that he's able to step up. Yeah, same. We're going to move on to the society portion, and as you mentioned offhandedly, you came to L.A. to work in entertainment, which I think is super fascinating. I, know, I have a couple of friends who did it. I have a family friend who actually is Kevin Hart's agent, which I learned nice. recently. Yeah, he got Kevin Hart a lot of money, which is kind of cool. Um, but I, I found out randomly that, like, our really close family friend's nephew is Kevin Hart's agent. Um, so, I mean, 
L.A. is something that, I don't know, I, I have, like, a passing knowledge of it and a passing interest, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on what the entertainment industry is right now and what drew you to it and what your experience was. Well, yeah, I, I always I grew up just did, like consuming uh, movies, especially and and so and as as much TV as I could. But movies were were my vice as a kid. I just I crushed them. There was a like an old school video rental store, which there are any young people that are listening to this might not even know what one was. Of it was it a blockbuster? Like, it, even, it was not a chain. No, it was called Captain's Video, and it was about two and a half blocks from my uh, childhood home uh, for most most of the years when I grew up. And uh, I would go there all the time. Like, even when I was, like, 9 or 10, you know, my parents would let me just would walk. I'd walk over there and check out a bunch of movies. So I played soccer with the son of the owner. And uh, my mom got me going on movies as a kid, like, with Star Wars and Goonies and uh, Willow and all these, all these kind of fantasy things. I, I ate that stuff up as a kid. But so I would just start going to this to the, uh, to the store, and I would, you know, pick up a movie or two with whatever I had the cash for. And he'd be like, go back and get, like, he's like, go back and get a couple more if you're interested. He's like, bring them back whenever. I know you're good for it. So, like, I just kind of had free reign at this video store as a kid and was just able to just pick them up all the time. And then we moved a little farther away, but I worked at a restaurant that was about the same distance away from this place. So anytime I, before or after a shift, I would go, you know, drop off my movies, get more. And then just at night, you know, getting off at the restaurant when you're not old enough to, like, go to the bars or anything, there's not a lot, not as much to do, especially in a smaller town in Wisconsin. I would go, go sit at home and, and plow through one or two movies at night. So I just I got fascinated with cinema and the ability to tell stories through a visual medium and all these great types of stories that were being told through there. That's something that I was always drawn to. And then in like high school and stuff, I did uh, I did school paper and I did uh, did theater and lots of other things like that. So I was always always writing and, and trying to tell stories in some way, shape, or form. And then I was gonna I started college in public relations and corporate communications, thinking I'd get you know a real job, but I just I realized very quickly that, that that wasn't for me and that if I was going to do anything, I had to, to chase this dream of, uh, of telling stories somehow, of being a part of that process. So I switched to like a TV film degree and uh, got as many internships and things as I could, shot a bunch of my own short films, won some awards in the Milwaukee area. I got an internship out here through the Emmys Foundation with Cartoon Network, like I mentioned to you on the Lost podcast, which was really cool. So that's what like, that's what allowed it to be so real for me because I spent so much of college and so much of my free time doing side projects and internships because this industry out here, it's crazy and it's super competitive. And like, you can't just come out and be like, yeah, I like the, you know, I like Lord of the Rings or I saw the artist this year. I want to make movies. People like name drop and there's like a second language and not name drop in a bad way, but like they'll just be talking about a film. And if you don't know what that you know movie was or who was involved in it, you're already a step behind. And then, you, you know, you're trying to chase up with what's current, catch up on what's old. So it's a, it's an industry that you really have to like be passionate about and put in the time for before you come out and try and do it because there are so many people that want to do it and that want to be a part of it. And it's not the biggest industry. I had a teacher in college that always referred to it as a very small incestuous business. And that's, that's 100% true. But once you're in that pool of incest i guess for lack of a better term it's uh it's it's pretty cool so i you know i just i wanted to come and try it and i always thought too like growing up in the midwest i saw an article once where i think something like 75 percent of the people or maybe even more that grow up in wisconsin stay in wisconsin and i was just like i knew that if i if i stayed there too long or waited to do this thing i would never do it 
because I would get too comfortable. I'd start settling down. I mean, like almost all of my friends back home now, like live with the girlfriend or are married and have kids, potentially kids, plural. So I just knew if I was going to come out and do this, I had to do it while I was young. I had to do it while I was still hungry. And uh, if I didn't like it, I could always go back. There was, there was no risk involved. So I moved out here the summer after graduating, and uh, that was 2011, and I have now been here ever since. I worked in entertainment for about a, about a year and a half or so, and I wasn't planning on jumping to football, um, but the, the opportunity presented itself. And like I mentioned earlier, I had such a passion for it as a kid. I was kind of like I'd be an idiot to not at least try and work for the NFL. So applied for that job, and now here I am now. Super fascinating. I know we did talk about it on the last podcast that you did work for Cartoon Network. So for those who are interested, because, I mean, Cartoon Network in the 2000s uh, was such a haven for so many people. Why don't you tell us a couple of the most interesting stories that you have from your time working there? Well, probably a couple of the most interesting ones I had were, first off, I got to meet Mark Hamill. So for anybody that's uh, just a nerd in general, and especially a fan of animation, knows how good he is as a voice actor. And when I was at Cartoon Network, they were putting the finishing touches on the season of regular show. It was going to air that fall after I interned there, which is an awesome show if people haven't seen it. It's zany and and fun, and uh, Mark Hamill does some of the voices. So when I was interning there, one of the uh, assistants I worked with was like, hey, they're doing a, you know, we don't have anything for you, and they're doing a voice recording session for regular show downstairs. She's like, you should go check it out. I was like, oh, that sounds awesome. I had no idea Mark Hamill was going to be there. So I get there, he pops in. I'm like, oh my God, this is Luke Skywalker. I was like freaking out a little bit, but I kept my cool. And he was like busting my balls, bragging on me as the intern and stuff, but he could not have been nicer. And he and everybody else on that show is so good at their jobs. It's really fun to watch them do like a live voice action, voice session. Um, so that was really cool. And the other funny story is that when I was at Cartoon Network, I don't know if you were watching it at this point, Ethan, because it was like, would have been the summer of 2009, like 09 to 010, or no, summer of 2010. So um, the Cartoon Network was trying to do live action. So they were trying to do reality shows and stuff, and they were getting all sorts of other pitches, and they were trying to do live action. And so it was really weird that it was Cartoon Network, and we were hearing all these live action pitches, and they were doing shows like Destroy, Build, Destroy with uh, Andrew W.K., and uh, they had stolen, like, human, or not stolen, but they had bought the rights to, like, human Tetris-style show from Japan, and it was just, it was kind of a really weird time, and then shortly after I left Cartoon Network, they disbanded all that stuff, because people didn't respond to it, they're like, this isn't cartoons, but so it was kind of fascinating to be in there, to see a big media company like that try to evolve, realize it wasn't on point with their brand, and what, what made them so great, and then, then get rid of it. Yeah, it is really interesting, and I also like regular shows, so that definitely is a a plus one from me. So from your time when you worked in Hollywood, when you worked in the entertainment industry, you know, people have a lot of conceptions of what that's like. We watch Entourage, we watch all of those other shows that either glamorize it or just make it seem like an awful, awful situation. Uh, what was your perception of working in Hollywood? Well, I think it's that it goes both ways. There are certainly parts of the industry that reinforce those stereotypes and that people people see or when they think of Hollywood, they think of that, the sleazy executive, the, the stars that don't give a shit and things like that. So there are certainly those aspects. But at the underbelly, um, 
there are still so many people that are so passionate about what they do and just want to try and make the next great movie and tell great stories. And they're always, they're constantly fighting an uphill battle is, is that's what sucks is like, while Hollywood seems so glamorous and stuff, especially when you think of the stars and, and stuff like that, the, all the people that it takes to make a movie or a television show happen are some of the most insanely hardworking, passionate people I've ever met in my life. Like the people that go out there and, you know, work on an indie because they love the script and they work for less than their rate and they do 18 hour days on a two week shoot and, you know, they eat, you know, the, the cheapest catering possible just because they believe in something and want to get it out there. It's, it's so cool. And that's like, it's such a, such a unique community, like team aspect, you know, like that's a good way I can frame it for other people that haven't been on a set like that is that it's, it's totally a team. It's like you're on a sports team. Everybody's got their roles. And in order to make something great, like everybody has to execute on their roles and, and you all have to come together. And that's what, so many people always wonder, they're asking me, like, how, how movies are, how movies suck, or like, why the, why this happened, or why that happened, and I'm like, there are just an almost infinite number of variables that go into making a movie, starting with when somebody sits down and writes the script, to how that script is developed, to what people come in, to how the production goes, to what things change during the production, and when you're in editing, and sound mixing, and all this stuff, and it goes through so many permutations that the process of making that great film is incredibly difficult and also incredibly rewarding. I only was there to see uh, at the company I worked at basically two movies go through to completion. Um, but it was, it was a really cool, really rewarding experience. And actually one of my favorite memories from working in entertainment, I was the assistant for a producer at a small production company. Um, she did TV and movies was we were getting close to going into production right before I actually ended up leaving the company on a, a super small indie. I think it's on Netflix. It's called Inner Demons. It didn't end up being the greatest movie by any stretch. But we were getting ready to go into production, and my boss always had uh, a bottle of Jameson that was given to her as a gift in her office. And it was a late night. We'd just done a table read. And it was her, her husband, the writing. And we were just in her office at the end of the night. And then... She just poured like four glasses of whiskey and the four of us just sat there and shot the breeze and talked for a little while and kind of unwound. And I mean, it was like 9.30 on a Tuesday night. I've been working since eight in the morning, but it was just such a cool little moment to have and reminded me of why I got into the business in the first place was that passion and that drive to tell great stories. So that's what I was trying to tell people is like, while you get, well, I get upset too with the number of retreads and comic book adaptations and stuff. But, you know, I know at the core of the entertainment industry is there are thousands of diehard passionate people trying to make the best movies possible, but they're just up against very difficult odds. And I think that's one of the great things about all these different crowdfunding platforms too, where at least from what I've seen from a, a gaming perspective, since that's sort of my expertise now, if there's a really good game, people will fund it to get made. If the concept makes sense, if people are aligned on it, if everyone is sort of vibing the same way, and if it hits a chord, people can come together to make it get made. And I thought that also happened in film as well, with Veronica Mars, um, with that movie being made, even though it wasn't the best movie either. Something I donated to, by the way. But it, yeah. it definitely was something that resonated with a lot of people. And people saw the value in the idea, and they made it work. And... Have you seen Suicide Squad yet, or have you not seen it? I have. 
So, what is your take on a movie like Suicide Squad? Well, it's it's twofold because, and it speaks to a lot of the problems with the blockbuster system in Hollywood today. But when they first announced they were going to do Suicide Squad, I was excited. I was like, cool, it's kind of an offbeat DC one. They need a rebranding. And then they got David Ayer to come on and write and direct it, who's a filmmaker I love. He's made some fantastic movies. Um, End of Watch and Fury recently, um, among others from back earlier in his career. So I was very excited for that. But then I thought the movie was an absolute mess. And then you hear stories about how they gave him like six weeks to write a script. And like, you just can't, when it comes to writing a script, you can't put such a finite timeline on it like that. Like these things need time to develop and to, to find the, the break them and get the best possible format. So the fact that Warner brothers, you know, just rushed it out in an, in an attempt to, to, you know, go with Marvel who is doing things the opposite direction and taking more time to develop their stories and stuff. It spoke to the, the difference in, in the productions there. And I was very disappointed in the, in the final product of the film. I, I, I really didn't like it at all. Uh, and, and it speaks to a larger problem, which I hope, change eventually but you know these studios are going to have to learn a hard lesson uh before they can actually change or get some new ownership at the top and the the, you know as you know at any major company that that's a huge that's a huge issue to have uh get through yeah my hot take on movies in general is that like i don't see a lot of movies anymore because normally i think netflix i like the longer episodic stuff because i like the way that it rolls out a little bit slower and i I, that's just sort of like the kind of storytelling I like. I did see Suicide Squad though because I saw it for free. And nice. when I saw the movie, I was entertained, but also I was bewildered the entire time. I actually thought the actors did a pretty good job. I thought Will Smith was okay. I thought Margot Robbie was pretty good. I thought Jay Hernandez yeah. was really good in that movie as yeah. Diablo. Uh, I did not think Jared Leto was good, but that was just me, my, I think. My, my description of Jared Leto was that he was like your drunk friend at a party that thinks he can do a really good Joker impression, but really, really can't. Oh, he was terrible. He was just really bad. But just they tried to do too many things. And they tried to fit, like, if, 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 if Suicide Squad should have been on Netflix, that's my take. If Suicide Squad was on Netflix, it would have had an entire episode to go through the exposition of all these characters instead of just shoehorning them in and throwing them at us super quickly. They would have had time to actually, like, set up the scene of the actual film. Like, basically, the first 20 minutes of the film, they just throw all the characters at you at once. They have, like, all these different songs playing. It's just really confusing and disorienting. I also hated what... Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, this is a point to, to why it's, they need to take time for better storytelling, is that they rushed everything out, and they introduced all those characters, but it was Viola Davis just telling us who these characters are and what they do. Like, did you see Captain America Civil War? Yeah. Okay, so, like, think about the beginning of that movie, juxtaposing it versus this one. We learn everything we need to know about Captain America, Black Widow, uh, every, everybody on the team in that first scene where they're chasing the guy. Except we learn it through action. We learn it through them making choices and doing things. That's such a, it's a much more enjoyable uh, and entertaining form of storytelling than just having somebody dictate it to us. And, like, the same thing is then they introduce a new character, you know, Black Panther, the first time we meet him is in that movie. We learn everything about him through the actions and choices that he makes in the movie, not because it's read out of a case file. So that's that's one of those things where I was, I was really mad. I was like, 
I was pissed right away in the theater because I was like, I was like, oh my god, why are we doing this? Like, it's just it's such a lazy form of storytelling, and it, it impacts the whole movie as a result. Then you don't feel as invested, and you don't care about those about those characters just by by having somebody tell you that they incinerated a bunch of people in a schoolyard. Like, put us in that scene or in a, in a prison yard. Put us in that scene. Let us let us see that happen. Let us see their you know their choices as opposed to just telling me that that's what happened. Yeah, the last thing I have to say about Suicide Squad is what they did to Killer Croc was absolutely awful, and I'm shocked it hasn't gotten more coverage, but they basically turned him into a, a stereotype for black people, and it really pissed me off. Oh yeah, it was terrible. It was, it was terrible. absolutely awful, and they should be ashamed of themselves. That's my last, that's my last Suicide Squad take. Um, as, as we finish up this segment, I guess, we, we, we talked a little bit about your experiences, some things that really stood out to you when you worked in entertainment, but what would you say are some lessons that you took from that industry and that you're applying now as you work in fantasy and in life in general? Well, I think one of them that really spoke in networking, uh, or excuse me, in entertainment, and uh, that helped me in my job here, and that I always try to pass on to younger people and ask me how I got my job or advice and stuff, is just how important networking is. Like, you know, you and I are connected through social media from, from talking on football, and Twitter is an amazing platform for that, for networking with people in your industry. Like, there's so many times now when people come out to L.A., they're like, they know Harmon and me from Twitter. They're like, hey, let's meet up and get a drink. Or, like, when I'm somewhere else, I, I hit up those people that are in that town. And it's just a way to build your connections. And, like, you don't want to treat networking as, like, a, I need to talk to you to get a job. It's just about building relationships, like, there was a great book I had to read in college for a class. It was called Dig Your Well Before You're Thirsty. It was all about networking. And it was just about how, you know, you don't treat, you don't treat it as a one-to-one thing. You just build the relationship, and that way, if the opportunity ever presents itself where you need something from them or they need something from you, you have a foundation. And it's not just, like, blind cold calling somebody from your, college, your alma mater or, you know, whatever. But the networking is just, it's such an important part in, in getting anywhere in life and, and finding jobs. I mean, you always hear that thing, it's not what you know, it's who you know. I think it's still very much what you know, but who you know helps immensely and can open up those doors. And by the same token, you'll meet some really great friends and really great people. Like, I have a couple of my best friends today out here through networking. Like, in trying to get out here in entertainment, they are, they are some of my best friends today. I've been in their weddings, I've, you know, been with them through good times and bad, I've taken trips with them and stuff, and... It's all because of networking. So that was something that's, that was really imperative in entertainment because a lot of jobs are freelance from there, like especially if you work in production. It's knowing people that are on other shoots and getting into those and stuff. But I, I just I try to hammer it home to everybody just how important it is, whether you're a journalist or you sell plumbing equipment, like whatever it is, don't be afraid to network. Don't be afraid to put yourself out there and, and build those relationships because – it will pay dividends tenfold over the course of the career. And that's a really, really good point that don't treat it like a chore. You should want to get to know the people you're networking with. If there's someone you don't like, you don't have to network with them. That's not the kind of person you're going to want to work with anyway. Right. So, uh, yeah, right. I mean, just go out and, like, meet people. I mean, I've met some really great people off of Twitter. I've been offered opportunities off Twitter. I've been offered opportunities by saying on Twitter I want an opportunity. So it's one of those things where... I think that I agree with you. Like networking is really important and I totally second everything that you said. We're going to move on to the stuff portion. We started talking about movies a little bit and we talked about cartoons a lot in our podcast. Um, so start actually though, I want to backtrack super quickly. 
because I was talking about how much I like Netflix, and I know you are a huge movie guy. And both mediums definitely have their pros and cons, for sure. But I'm going to actually pose the question to you. What do you think Netflix originals or original series can't do that movies can do? Well, I think the, the best movies tell a compelling, engaging story in, uh, in a succinct fashion. And you get that full arc, and it's just, it's such a clear, when, when a movie is done well, it's just such a cleanless, you know, clear, seamless story that, that you consume and you love and you go back to again and again. And what's awesome about the Netflix things is that they have that avenue to tell longer stories, but, you know, it's in that, completing that arc in a concise, efficient, but still meaningful fashion is that that's what they, that's what they miss out on. You have more opportunities to explore you know, some nuance and things like that. But that's why I still like, I think I, I prefer film to television is I like getting that full art and, you know, hitting, hitting the end of that movie in two to three hours is just, it's such a satisfying feeling when it's done well and seeing those characters grow and change in a, in a story and this journey that you've been taken on. Whereas I, I consume altogether too much television too, but sometimes, you know, that you have to wonder if the juice is worth the squeeze when you get to, when you get to the end of a series. I will say that I might be on a movie roll now. I kind of agree with you because the movie that everyone has been talking about recently, and this is going to segue really well into cartoons, is Kubo and the Two Strings. Everyone who has seen this movie says it's so good. So I might have to see yet another movie. It might be on my to-do list. So we've talked a lot about cartoons. I know you're a huge fan. What are some of the big ones that you've watched in the past, and what are you watching now? Oh man, my cartoon watching now has fallen off a cliff, or just everything in general. I have a stack of comics I need to read, among other books, because as the se- as the season approaches, the- everything that I want to do that's that's fun in life kind of goes by the wayside. But some of the seminal ones I think I watched growing up were uh, obviously like you know the the standouts like Dexter's Lab and things like that on Cartoon Network and, and the Rugrats and that that whole trio, Rocco's Modern Life, all those ones growing up, but. Some of the ones that I really loved that I thought pushed the medium in, in new, fun ways were, uh, were like South Park and Futurama were two that I started watching a lot, uh, you know, in middle school and high school and beyond. And just the way, like the whole South Park, like the six days to air kind of thing and how they can tackle an issue uh, so well and so quickly and how the, the lesser animation style isn't ever a detriment to the show and they kind of owned it, I thought was amazing. And I mean, I'll, I'll say it here, there, there is no better duo of writers or any writer on the planet at satire than Matt and Trey when they want to be on their game. Like, they can write a, an episode that's basically, you know, dick and fart jokes for 30 minutes, but when they were intelligently an issue, there's simply no be- nobody better on the planet. And then, by the same token, Futurama, I know we talked about, <laughs> I was tweeting, with, but the way that show so smart and also could be so emotionally challenging at times, which I know you talked about is Bojack is like that. And I haven't gotten into it yet, sadly, but, uh, oh, it's you, still know, like your home. you still got to get into that. I know, I know, I know. It probably might be one of my things that I watch as I like fall asleep during the season here instead of NFL game pass. But, um, you know, the episodes in Futurama where they tug at your heartstrings, like Brian, his dog or Brian, his brother. And, and some of those other ones, and just getting the interesting characters and stuff. Those were so those were some of the seminal ones that I watched a lot growing up. 
Yeah, I know you went in and out a second ago, but I was pretty sure you were referring to the fact that you ended up accidentally flipping to Futurama at some point in yep. the past couple of weeks, and it was frying his dog in that episode. Yep. And you watched everybody it. On Twitter, everybody on Twitter, too, was like, don't do it, turn off the channel. And uh, I was I was in, I had to, I had to watch it. Ugh, uh, that episode. Jeez. Yeah, we talked about BoJack a couple of weeks ago. BoJack is awesome. Rick and Morty's coming back, too. That's going to be really great. Although you might not have time to watch it because it's the middle of football season. But that's going to be really exciting. But actually, I think Rick and Morty might come back later, so hopefully you won't have to deal with it too much during fantasy, just maybe toward the end. I don't know the yeah, entire schedule, fingers, though. Fingers crossed. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, and I still... I still have to get into Stranger Things. That's the other thing I have to get into still. I haven't watched it yet. I've heard yeah, good I've things, heard that as well. but that's on my list too. Now, to end this off, I want to talk about music. Have okay. you listened to the new Frank? I have not. Oh, that's really disappointing. I'm sorry. I, uh, I, this is something I've been trying to do more this year is listen to, uh, to new music. So I, I paid for Spotify premium so I could listen ad free and find some new artists and stuff. But the trouble is, is as my grind starts at the office, my, my music rotation becomes smaller and smaller. And it's a lot of like movie scores and things like that. Uh, piano music, classical music that are good to have in the background. So I'm not distracted and I can just plow through all the all the content I have to create and stuff over here. So I have sadly not listened to the new Frank Ocean yet. Alright, so you are a you are a headphones at work kind of person. Is that the norm at our, NFL.com? Our whole, well our whole team is like the, the around the NFL writers and, and us are because I, Mark Sessler once described working in the NFL media newsroom as working in a Bangladesh marketplace because <laughs> there's so much going on and so many people having com- conversations and when you of you know the eight people sitting in here that are tasked with researching and writing and producing the vast majority of the content that goes on NFL.com, you need to drown out the noise. So I know uh, Matt Franciscovich and Harmon and I think Marcus too all might have noise canceling headphones. I don't have noise canceling headphones yet. I might have to get up there, but yeah, we're definitely headphones at the office kind of people. We have an IM client we chat through, but. There is so much going on here and so many people having conversations around you oftentimes that it, you need to focus. You just have to drown it out, drown it out with music. I actually, I, I, I've shown Matt these headphones, I believe. I don't think I've shown them to you. I have Star Wars noise-canceling headphones that I got from someone who we work with. They're so cool. They're the best. Although, I wear them a little bit too much because I've definitely noticed that my hearing is getting slightly worse and also... When people are asking for me, we have an, we have AIM, but AIM, it's called AIM, apparently. AIM is yeah. not what it's called. I didn't realize that everyone was so uppity about that, but it's called AIM. Um, yeah, people can't get in touch with me when I'm not on that, which is a problem, but they're still really nice headphones, so I'll wear them anyway. Yeah, Frank Ocean, at some point you got to listen to it, because it's really, really good. I've probably listened to it about seven or eight times by now. At work, also, because I listened to it first, like, a couple of times, just to, like, get, like, the vibe. And I had a weekend to listen to it, because it came out on Saturday. So, I had a little bit of time to to really begin to think about the lyrics and listen to it and understand what's going on. And now I've been playing it at work, because it just gets me in a good mindset when I'm, like, looking at stuff I don't want to be looking at or just doing work in general. So, it, it, it's one of those things where... 
I I just really, really it's so good. And there are so many good songs. At some point we'll talk about it, but you've seen the TL blow up about it. So you you know you know you have to listen to Freak. You know that's on your few list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you listen to NFL films at all? The scores from NFL films? Oh, I love the NFL film scores. Oh, they're so good. What's your favorite one? It's uh, I think it's called A New Game. It's the one that starts with the with the bell. And they usually play it around the time of the playoffs. It's got the like kind of descending bell melody, and then it swells up after that, and it kind of goes in the dun 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 dun. Yeah. dun. I'm probably doing not doing it anywhere justice, but that's far and away my favorite. My favorite one will always be the Ramblin' Man from Grambling, which is for yeah. those who don't know, it was featured in an episode of SpongeBob. Fun yeah, fact. Good stuff. Um, um, yeah, it's like. Yeah, I, I I'm not gonna try to sing it because I can't sing it, and I it just wouldn't make any sense. Maybe you know what? I'll put it as the intro to this podcast. So you if you are at this point in the podcast, the intro is Ramblin' Man from Grambling. So there you go. Now you know. Now you've learned a new song. Yeah, no NFL films music is just so great. I love it so much. Uh, anyway, I think actually this is about all we really wanted to cover tonight. So, yeah, thanks for joining, Alex. This has been great. Good luck. Yeah, thanks for thanks for racing home early for me tonight. I had to I had to get out of uh, get out of Dodge here pretty quick. So I appreciate you squeezing me into the schedule. But it was fun chatting with you. Happy to do it again any other time. Yeah, no problem. We will be back soon. Maybe next week. We we're telling. We have done more than half of the weeks of the year, and we've, we're guaranteed to have done more than half of the weeks of a calendar year now with this podcast, so I, I feel like that's pretty successful. I'm pretty happy with that ratio, but we'll probably be back next week. Maybe we'll be back in two weeks with the Hammer Time Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share. Please subscribe. Please rate. Until next time, talk to you later.